Welcome, everyone. It's a pleasure to host you today at the CSAE Research Podcast, a series of conversations about projects taking place at the Center for the Study of African Economies at the University of Oxford. My name is Nicolas Lipolis. I'm a research and policy officer at the CSAE in the Department of Economics, University of Oxford. I'm very pleased to be discussing the project on urbanization in China and Africa. The question that we asked at the beginning was whether Africa could learn from the Chinese urbanization story. In the next 30 years, Africa's cities need to make room for 500 million more citizens, so roughly tripling the current urban population. This offers new opportunities for growth and prosperity, but also significant challenges for public policy. China is the only other place in the world to have experienced a comparable urbanization challenge. To give you an example, between 1978 and 2010, China's urban areas took on approximately 700 million additional people. The project sought to understand how the successes and limitations of China's experience could inform urbanization challenges currently being faced in Africa and how to design policies that harness full economic potential of cities. The project was funded by the Department for International Development, DFID China, now the FCDO, of course, and was run in partnership between the CSAE, the International Growth Center, uh, based at the University of Oxford and the London School of Economics, and the Center for International Knowledge and Development in Beijing. Joining me today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Astrid Haas. Astrid is an independent urban economist based in Kampala, Uganda, and also Sebastian Kritikos, who is a transport and infrastructure economist at the EBRD, formerly at the International Growth Center. Welcome, Astrid and Seth. So just to get started, perhaps Astrid, could you tell us a little bit more about the motivation and aims of the project? Thanks, Nicholas, and thanks, CSAE, for for hosting us on this podcast. So yes, as you mentioned, Nicholas, the major opportunity is that China is the only other place in the world that has experienced the same rapid urban transition that that Africa is is currently undergoing. And obviously, the second major opportunity is that there's no country in the world, including China, that has developed without urbanizing. In fact, China's GDP growth over the time of its urbanization uh, process was extremely high, as we all know. And this is something that, you know, African economies in terms of economic growth seek to, to, to emulate. However, the major difference, obviously, is that China, as well as m- most other developed countries today that urbanize, they urbanize together with industrialization, whereas we don't see the same trend happening across the Afri- African continent and therefore the same economic growth. And so the question was, can we find learnings from the Chinese urbanization experience, particularly having urbanization coupled with industrialization from which, which Africa could uh, learn from? Now, of course, the major challenge is that China is, is one country, albeit a very big country, but it has one sort of institutional structure, cultural, economic and political history, whereas Africa is an extremely diverse continent with 54 countries and thousands of, of cities growing in number each year. So what we try to do with this research project is taking that into consideration and, and, and understanding that we were not going to be able to compare one for one by any means, was to see whether we could provide a framework um, through our research that distilled the, the necessary and important public policies that were undertaken in China, both the, the public policies that unleashed opportunities, but also the problematic public policies that shouldn't be emulated to see whether there were any sort of lessons that could be learned. And we did this through a case study approach. I'm sure Seb will, will talk about more in more detail, but we chose two case studies on the African continent, two country case studies, so Kenya and Ethiopia, both with 
rapidly growing cities, two cities in each country. And the CIKD similarly looked at rapidly growing cities in China. We juxtaposed the public policies and we sort of looked at, at five areas, um, urban land, infrastructure and public services, municipal finance, firm growth and investment. So that's basically the framework we attempted to put it in, but obviously always recognizing that, you know, the comparison of one country to get vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, a very diverse continent would, would come with its challenges. Thank you, Astrid. Thank you. Uh, that's a very uh, this encompassing description. So then I'm going to uh, pass over to Seb and ask him, Seb, uh, you know, we had this project has very broad goals and it was, you know, very pertinent questions for the future of, of Africa. But how did the project meet the challenge of comparing one country with a continent, such a diverse continent as Africa? As Astrid described a little bit how the empirical strategy worked. But we wanted to hear from you, how did the research work in practice? You know, I think this can also be uh, informative for, for other people trying to do similar research projects. Can you tell us a little bit more about the practical aspects and how we went about doing the research? Well, thanks for the invitation. I'm very glad to be here with you. So in terms of the practical aspects of how we went about the research, as Astrid sort of kicked off to describe, the project really had two quite distinct phases first, which took place in 2019, which was the preparation of a background paper and a framework to really characterize the different urbanization processes in China and across the sub-Saharan Africa region. And that was really very much a process of desk-based qualitative research, quantitative research, and, and sort of a synthesis of the literature in urban economics, because we had sort of partners in of our, our counterparts in, in China, which hadn't really interacted to, with the sort of academic literature on this idea of urbanization without industrialization that we've seen on the sub-Saharan African continent. For them, it was very much considered as sort of two sides of the same coin. So unpacking those, that academic literature and distilling it into a relatively simplified but but broad framework of key policy areas where there are differences between the two regions was sort of a, a critical start. And that involved various desk-based research exercises, but a lot of sort of stakeholder engagement in forums with academics, which took place at LSE and also in, in Beijing. And what we wanted to do in the next stage, which took place in 2020, was broad themes of sort of Differences in land policy, differences in infrastructure, in, in, in governance, institutional setup, differences in the industrialization process, and apply them to quite specific and sort of ongoing policy contexts and debates in the sub-Saharan African context. I think when we started off, what was good about the program is that we weren't shy or concerned about having quite broad conversations and probing very, you know, simple and broad questions to the academics or policymakers that we interviewed and did research with just to understand the differences between sort of how land markets played out, how infrastructure decisions were made and implemented. But I think what was also useful for us was because this was a consultancy style contract that had intermediary deadlines um, for our clients in terms of delivering bi-weekly updates, plans for how we would scope the work, implementation plans, it kept us quite disciplined as researchers in terms of how we iterated on our ideas, how we started to narrow down. And we eventually narrowed down on applying our research to Ethiopia and Kenya for the economic ties that these two countries had with China. And 
their sort of place in the debate and potential application of their work of, of the work we could do there to the rest of sub-Saharan Africa. And we also sort of place criteria to look at the capital cities and the sec and important secondary cities, which ended up bringing us to working on Nairobi, Mombasa, Addis Ababa, and Hawassa. And I think in terms of myself and, and yourself, Nicholas, deciding on the context almost helped to decide the research also. You know, Nicholas, you have sort of a strong specialism on Ethiopia, on themes of industrialization, special economic zones, political economy. I myself came from more of a transport, urban economics and infrastructure background, and that applied quite well to sort of quite important infrastructure reforms, transport reforms that had taken place in Kenya, and also applied quite well to the ongoing decentralization process in Kenya, which affected the Mombasa case study quite closely. Thanks, Seb. I think it's very helpful for, for as you said, go through the detail of, of the setup of the project for other researchers thinking about doing a similar project in the future. So given uh, this uh, high-level description you've given about the entire kind of setup for our empirical research, I think it would be interesting to go over uh, the results, some of the results that we found uh, during our research and how we obtained these results. So let's start off by discussing uh, the Nairobi case study. What was that about? How did we conduct the research and what were some of the findings? And then we can discuss how these uh, relate to the findings from the other cities. Well, our framing paper had helped to sort of trace the origins of African urbanization and Chinese urbanization when we went to look at applying these the themes that were coming out of that framework paper of land, infrastructure, governance, industrialization to specific countries. When we took this to sort of applying it to a case study on Nairobi, I think weeks of um, process of desk research led us to the conclusion that studying the connectivity challenge would be a very interesting thing to do in the context of Nairobi. The country as a whole has undergone quite important transport sector reforms in the last 20 years. And Nairobi as a city has also received quite a lot of large-scale transport infrastructure and particularly road infrastructure investment projects from, from China over the last 15 years too. So it's made it quite an interesting context to, to study that. And I think what was interesting looking at the differences between China and, and Kenya in terms of road infrastructure quality and delivery was of course, at first, I think there was a quite substantial difference in terms of the stock and quality of road infrastructure in the two countries at sort of early stages of their, let's say, economic or institutional transition. If you if you compare how Kenya was in the 1960s following independence to how China was in sort of the late 1970s after the, the Mao era, there was the quality of road infrastructure was was already much better in China. But I think what was interesting about this, this, this case study was looking at how the differences in institutions and differences in, in institutional reforms, how they've played out and the impacts that has on, on the delivery of road infrastructure and sort of the evolution of, of transport infrastructure. What we studied in Kenya was various reforms that have taken place since 2007 that have really looked to take away the responsibilities for infrastructure delivery from central powers and to set up independent and autonomous agencies to deliver road infrastructure. And in parallel with this, processes of decentralization, empowering and improving local authorities in efforts to separate 
the policy decision-making process and the actual execution of infrastructure delivery in, a, in quite a similar way to how infrastructure is delivered in China. In fact, in, in China, most infrastructure is planned, financed, and, and delivered at a local level. So with Kenya instituting reforms that move towards the Chinese institutional setup in terms of trying to empower local governments to deliver, we also wanted to probe this question of you know, why are we not seeing the same kind of improvements in actual infrastructure delivery? And, and what we found is that whilst there had been efforts to decentralize the institutional system in Kenya, the role of local governments in infrastructure delivery have been constrained by the decentralization not being full enough or robust enough in practice, uh, not getting the incentives right to actually allow for the handover of infrastructure delivery and responsibilities to to local governments. There continues to be a lot of confusion about how road assets and transport assets should be assigned to either authorities working at a more centralized level versus at a, at a more local level. And a lot of issues with respect to garnering the resources and, and funding to fund development. In, in China, the institutional setup really almost cut local governments off from central government finances and, and therefore incentivized local governments to be much more entrepreneurial and innovative and, and driven in how they, they deliver results. The final interesting finding here was that whilst the institutional setup has permitted fast growth and fast infrastructure delivery in China, there have also been aspects where it's led to, to bad incentives. Perhaps the delivery of infrastructure very quickly above focusing on targets for sustainability, above perhaps considering the most optimal location or structures for infrastructure delivery. And this has led to sort of classic problems that many people know about China, such as ghost cities, last mile challenges with respect to transport infrastructure, and overemphasis on sort of private motorization. So that's very much what this project has always been about, sort of identifying the policy successes that are perhaps transferable, as well as identifying, as Astrid said, those challenges that retrospectively we want to avoid happening on the African continent. Thanks, sir. This is very interesting. I think the comparison of the policy planning systems in the African countries and in China, I think you, you flag very clearly the similarities, the attempts to move in towards what some would say are best practices in infrastructure planning, but also, but also some of the challenges that are still uh, found in African contexts, uh, as well as in China. I just want to come in there to complement a little bit what you said, and perhaps interpret the, the issue from a more, let's say, systemic perspective. I think that when we're analyzing, the, especially the Chinese context, it is important to keep in mind the, the underlying institutional uh, environment in which these various reforms to urban planning took place. And it is important to flag that in China, you know, the, the, the basis of the urban planning system is this idea of a land revenue regime, right? Now, due to some of the reforms that, that Seb discussed, uh, local governments in China largely finance themselves through land, through the sale of, of, of land rights, right? And that, in combination with some of the other reforms that have been put in place in China over the years, has led them to internalize the economic benefits from urban development. As, as Astrid and Seb said in the introduction, you know, Urbanization, industrialization, and the most successful development experiences, they go hand in hand. 
And in China, the land revenue system allows local governments to internalize the benefits from economic expansion. And that, together with some of the other institutional reforms that were mentioned, leads to more efficient planning process, if we can put it in that, in that way. In China, meanwhile, what happens, and we can see the manifestations of the, of the limitations of, of the institutional environment in China, we can see it along, along the areas of infrastructure planning, decentralization, or industrialization, and land management, which are the areas that we investigated in the project. We can see that in China, the institutional environment is not very regulated. It's not well regulated, right? There's a, a series of overlapping land tenure regimes. A lot of the institutional systems, such as land cadastres, for example, are not very well developed. And that means that when uh, urban planning and infrastructure planning takes place, authorities cannot really rely on the system's function. And one thing that we realized over the course of the project is that in these situations, Often, if governments want to deliver on their campaign or their programmatic uh, promises, they actually have to bypass the planning system. And that is something that we saw very clearly in one of the case studies that was the case of Hawassa Industrial Park in Ethiopia, but we also seen, for example, in Ethiopia in the case of condominiums, also something that the, the house, condominium housing that was built in the outskirts of Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. We also see examples of this in road projects in Kenya. Across these, these different kinds of infrastructure projects, uh, often with governments really want to deliver, given the weaknesses of their underlying institutional environments, they actually have to bypass these environments. And when this takes place, uh, external actors, such as Chinese financiers and contractors, but also from other countries, Western countries and Japan, for example, they, they are brought in to help, right? And what ends up happening is that while projects can be delivered with more or less success, the infrastructure, the underlying systems for infrastructure governance get progressively weakened. And that is something that we've seen across the different case studies, and that I think is very important to, to keep in mind and is bound to, to shape the, the future of uh, urban planning and, and infrastructure development in Africa. So these are some of the conclusions. Uh, we can go into greater depth if people have interest. We, we invite people, readers to read some of our publications and some of our blog posts. But to, to give some kind of some conclusions on, on what actually has been learned from these case studies, perhaps Astrid, what do you think, based on our research, based on the background papers and the workshops that we've organized, what do you think Africa can actually learn from the Chinese urbanization stories? What would be some of the conclusions that you draw from our project? So I think there are, you know, as much as I, I cautioned at the beginning, sort of making the comparisons, I do think there are sort of four broad lessons that I, I think that are worth drawing out. The first is it's really important to plan for urban settlement before people settle. And this includes building it and financing the necessary large scale infrastructure. And China has done this extremely well. But one of the pitfalls in the in the in the Chinese experience, particularly as we're learning today, is that they're uh, experiencing a lot of environmental pollution as a result on, of their their strategy. And so I think the, the learning is, is how can we, we do this planning, building and financing of large scale infrastructure before people settle, but do it in a climate smart way, I think is the sort of first, first area. The second area is very much about financing this infrastructure. And there, you know, there's both learnings on how to do it, but also what the limitations are from the, from China's land value capture experience. But I think more broadly, rather than sort of copying China, which has a very specific land tenure system and, and across um, African countries and particularly African cities, there, there are multiple complex land tenure systems. I think the learning is how can we locally adapt land value capture mechanisms? And I think there's a lot more 
to be learned in the African context there, but the Chinese context shows that, you know, if you can do it well and you can adapt it to your local land tenure system, then there's a lot of finance that can be, be raised in this way. I think the, the third area is around not only taking the successes of experiences, but also learning from what didn't work and trying to do that better. So I think one, one particular area is around the, the special economic zone. I think oftentimes this has been hailed as a silver bullet solution, particularly when looking at places like Shenzhen. But there's also a lot of special economic zones that didn't perform nearly as well. And in fact, some would even argue perhaps failed in the Chinese experience. So what can we learn, particularly as this is now a policy that that many African governments are pursuing? What can we learn not only from the successes, but also the failures? The final piece, and I think Seb alluded to this a lot in his sort of talking about the Kenyan case study, is about how we really empower local governments and how we do this by encouraging and incentivizing policy experimentation rather than policy mimicry. You know, urbanization is very much a local phenomenon that's going to require local, locally tailored solutions. So how do we experiment at a local level? But then also, how do we take successful experiments to scale? And I think this is something that was done extremely well in, in many cases in China. So I would say that these are sort of four broad learnings that I would take. But I would encourage, as you said, Nicholas, to, to have a look at the, the, the papers as well as the case studies, which are very rich in, in, in detail. Thanks, Astrid. That is very, very interesting. I think especially highlighting some of the failures of the Chinese experience is also very important. We've seen in contemporary discussions, right, on the issues about local government debt, that their system is was very efficient, was very powerful in, in spurring some aspects of urban development, but there are questions as to whether it, it is sustainable. And also for bringing out some of the more governance aspects of it, right? They continue to be a challenge in Africa, and there, is, there potentially could also be some learnings from China, as you mentioned very well. Perhaps it makes sense, you know, given these lingering questions about African urbanization and China and the policy lessons, perhaps it makes sense to center in what uh, the future of research in this area could look like. So let me briefly ask you, Seb, what do you think are some of the interesting areas that we could move in in the future to, to understand kind of the, the, the learnings from China and Africa and the comparative learnings from the two regions? I think the framing paper that we developed did well to sort of unlock themes that could, could really unlock a very wide range of different research topics. And we were almost, I felt, spoiled for choice and struggling to narrow down on, on what we would, would choose. I think that one of the areas that really interested me and I would have liked to unpack more is themes around land, land markets, land auctions, land sales and land financing as, as has been discussed and really unpacking what is somewhat a black box in the terms of the Chinese case of how these auctions worked, how much revenue they were able to raise and the pros and pitfalls of the, the system. I think as Astrid sort of rightly mentioned, it's important to recognize the diversity in the, in the different systems across many African countries and not to replicate the sort of a one-size-fits-all attempt what has happened in, in China because there has been, have been significant challenges with it. But understanding that system better could provide incentives for African governments to really work on generating more clarity around uh, land tenure systems, understanding the power of land as a revenue-raising mechanism and by its very nature, a tool that is, that is local and empowering of local governments. I think that was a really interesting 
area of the research. The second one, I would say, is the institutional histories of the, the two regions and how this led to strong differences in how policy was approached. And again, sort of led to local government empowerment. I think it's important just to, to add to what, what Ashford was saying about policy experimentation was that China in 1978 was coming out of a fairly disastrous policy record following sort of the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution. And I think what Deng Xiaoping recognized in many of the reforms that he took forward was that the country was vast. The implications of getting policy wrong were vast. And recognizing that diversity in the the need to be flexible in their policy approach. He sort of implemented a, a, a policy environment in which governments could experiment and they could scale up what worked and, and sort of discover for themselves what worked and what did not. And that's really epitomized, I think, by this common phrase of Deng Xiaoping's of crossing the river by, by feeling the stones. And I think this is an important mantra for, for any governments and, and, and certainly for the African continent. Thanks, Seb. Thanks. So, you know, on one hand, the very technical, we need to do more research on the very technical aspects of land auctions and land management, but also some of the more high level issues uh, around uh, the philosophy of government. So it's very interesting mix there. Astrid, you mentioned some four broad areas where uh, we can draw conclusions from comparing China and Africa. And I, in each of these four areas, there are a lot of promising research avenues. But perhaps let me be a little bit mean here and ask you, which, you, which one do you think is the most important policy area for future research on African urbanization? <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, Nicholas. And I'm actually going to take your question. Uh, and I'm going to say I'm going to actually add a fifth because I think there's one that we didn't mention. And I think it's very important. You mentioned that we, we were looking at comparative learnings, but, you know, one of the, the, the drawbacks to our own work, uh, and I will be the first to admit it, is that we really very much focused on the one-way learning from, from China to, to what Africa can draw from China's experience. And I think there's a not very much research, but a lot to learn from what can be done the other way. So what can China learn from Africa's experience? Because China is still urbanizing very rapidly. It's now sort of hit the brakes in many ways uh, for, for, for uh, areas that it was doing very successfully, you know, both in sort of land financing, as you mentioned, debt, I think Seb mentioned the sort of ghost cities and ghost towns. But for example, another very important thing is that China didn't, has not implemented a property tax and is only now sort of considering that. And there are many, many experiences in African cities where property tax reform happened quite successfully. So I think there's a lot of areas where we can also do the other, the learning the other way. So what can what can China learn from Africa's experience? And so I would love to see a lot more work done around that. Thanks, Astrid. That's that's brilliant. That's good to caution against this idea that one-sided learning. I think every the learning can go both ways. And that's that's very, very important to flag. And that's something we should mention more often. Thank you very much. Just to conclude, maybe I'll pitch in what I think are interesting areas based on some of some of the conclusions that we reached earlier. I just I think as, as I discussed uh, and as was discussed in this podcast, the the institutional environment in Africa perhaps is is is, is plagued by a lot of flaws, a lot of a lot of problems that don't allow the benefits from urbanization to be maximized, to be harnessed to their fullest. Right? 
And as I discussed, the intersection, the interaction between local authorities and external actors might be a relevant factor for explaining the perpetuation of the situation. So perhaps going forward, I was thinking, looking at the influence of external actors, such as China especially, on the institutional environment for policymaking in African countries, in African cities, I think that it's a very important uh, area for research. How does the entry of Chinese actors as construction companies or Chinese companies, for example, uh, you know, private firms and so forth, how does that, does that affect the institutional environment and the governance uh, of African cities? That's one aspect. And also, you know, kind of uh, paralleling uh, Seb's uh, allusion to the more technical aspects of policymaking, how does uh, contracting work in the China-Africa nexus, in the China-Africa infrastructure nexus? How are these contracts elaborated? I know Astrid is in Uganda, where there's recently there was a lot of controversy about some of the Chinese contracts. You know, what is the process through which these contracts are drafted and what considerations do they respond to? I think this is also very important and it ties to the institutional environment, uh, as I mentioned earlier. So in sum, a lot of promising areas for research, a lot of learnings. We think the Chinese and African comparison is very useful, also for looking at contexts that are non-Western, that might have developed along different paths. And so uh, this project, I think, was very successful, and we, we surely encourage similar projects to take place in the future. I'd like to thank, again, Astrid and Sebastian for joining us in this re interesting discussion. Thanks to the audience for listening to CSAE Research Podcast. And we really do hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks for having us, Nicholas.